Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. All-star donor, businessman JP McManus donates one million euro to every GAA county board in Ireland. Critics say pay taxes here, but it's Christmas come early for many across the country. I'm from Knockinny myself, so JP wouldn't be too far away from me in Martinstown. And I will say what he does for our communities are fantastic. And my two daughters play GA as well. So that's outstanding that he is doing that. And it does help all of those like smaller clubs, really. In a historic move, EU leaders open accession talks with Ukraine, despite some tensions from Hungary. And if Ukraine doesn't have support from the EU and the US, uh, well, then Putin will win. And all of the consequences that flow for the world after that. And from Netflix's biggest ever data revealed to a world-first AI broadcast, we have the latest developments from the world of tech. Nationwide GAA county boards rejoiced when the news broke that Limerick-based businessman uh, JP McManus would donate €1 million Euro to every GAA county board in the country. But are these the actions of a benevolent billionaire or is it a punter-friendly PR move? Well, we're joined now by Fine Gael Senator John McGahan, Sinn Féin TD McCarthy, Executive Editor of the Irish Daily Mail John Lee and Labour Senator Annie Hoey. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, John, I want to come to you first on this. It's a major Christmas bonus, really, to every uh, GAA county board, as we were saying. It's not the first time um, that Gaelic Games has benefited from Mr McManus's generosity. And there was no public statement on this, but good news travels fast. It's Yeah, it seems to be... Um, he has asked that it breaks down for grassroots players and goes to clubs. So that's a, a distribution across all um, all county boards in the country who can then distribute to, to clubs. And um, yes, it's a munificent move from him. He's done similar in, tw in 2018 um, where he gave 100,000 to each county board. He's known to contribute um, largely to the <coughs> Limerick County Board and assist their their. Mm -hmm. Uh, county team in achieving the success they've had. I know he contributes, I think, to their annual holiday and it seems they win the All-Ireland every year now, so they, they get a holiday every year. Um, I've spoken to golfers on the golf course, professional golfers who have told me that he helped them out at the start of their careers. He was influential at the beginning of Tiger Woods' career. Tiger Woods mm. held his uh, wedding at his um, Sandy Lane resort and they've remained friends since. Tiger Woods participates in in charity events, but it has cast uh, attention once again on not only his tax status, but the amount of money that he has mm. accumulated over the years through gambling initially, and then, as he says himself, through um, currency trading. Um, how exactly that money is made, we're not to know, because he is um, 
domicile principally in, in Switzerland. And yeah, and actually, when we under... said at the top of the show, Limerick-based, he's actually a, a, a resident of Switzerland um, and, you know, for, for tax purposes, so while he is a tax exile, um, there's no illegality in that, per se. It's just, a, 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 I suppose, a financial decision to no. base yourself in Switzerland. Um, there's no... There's no... Legality is not the issue, and there, there are richer men in the world than... Mm. Uh, than J.P. McManus, but where it has cast eyes on his tax status, it does raise a question, I think there's an increasing dialogue worldwide about how some people are accumulating what would seem to me to be totally unjustifiable levels of wealth. Mm -hmm. And um, why one man should be, <laughs> be able to accumulate that level of wealth while right. people starve in the streets might seem like a naive almost childish mm. question to raise, but certainly I, I'm an average punter as well. Okay. And th this casts eyes, I think, on all of that accumulation of wealth, which appears to be getting out of control. Okay. Um, although it has to be said, um, very popular and well-regarded businessman who's given over 100 million euro um, to charity and to various forms of charity, not th just through sport, but through his foundation in, in Limerick in particular and, and to various... Um, good causes. Uh, Annie Hoey, you would be uh, a critic, uh, perhaps, of this move. You're, you're sceptical, uh, sceptical uh, it has to be said, about a big cash boost by one of our most successful businessmen. And there's no begrudging for the GAA county boards that, that, that that's a lot of raffle tickets you'd have to sell to make up a million in each of those places. And it's great for them to get that money. And for a lot of them, it'll be very well uh, needed. But it does raise a question in terms of we've talked about the tax exile and um, not mm. paying taxes here in Ireland. The question around how someone can accumulate that level of wealth. I don't personally think any human being should have the level of wealth where they can donate 32 million on an average day uh, to, to, to uh, a sport. I think that is an astonishing amount of money. And as I said, we have people record, not all over the world. People are hungry. People are starving. People don't have enough. And there seems to be increasing uh, small... Uh, number of people with increasing amounts of money and increasing amount of resources. Okay. And I think if we can't eat the rich, we should at least be able to tax them. OK, so uh, you've got an issue, I suppose, with the broader question about, um, you know, tax exiles and, and how we treat them in this country. But um, in this particular case, um, do cancer centres, do hospices, addiction services and community organisations who have benefited benefited hugely um, from the generosity of J.P. McManus. And then we've seen today how GAA clubs up and down the country are very happy about the €32 million Euro, um, that has landed in their coffers um, from money that might otherwise not be funded by government. And I think we should have a world where these things are funded by government, that we don't have cancer centres having to do uh, on-street fundraising in order to be able to do research. We shouldn't have um, our sports facilities be underfunded because there isn't enough money from government. We should have people who pay their fair share of tax, which is then divided fairly and equally between people. I've done a lot of work, particularly in the area of cancer research. That should not be funded by people on the street who have been deeply affected by cancer. It should be funded by government money. And I don't think it is a good way for us to run a country or to rely on the benevolence of these billionaires who at any point, by the way, can turn around and be like, actually, I'm not going to give that money anymore, which could have a devastating, and that's not in this particular individual. Mm. But, you know, it happens right. where 
billionaires withdraw funding from certain <clears> things. Atlantic Philanthropies left Ireland a couple of years ago and a load of, of NGOs and organisations were left with no funding. You know, we shouldn't be relying our goodwill and our good work and our charity work on the benevolence of a couple of billionaires. It should be funded and we shouldn't, we shouldn't need okay. these things in the first place. Uh, John McGahan, do we do that? I mean, does government <coughs> welcome moves such, like the, uh, such as this? I think anyone would welcome a move such like this. And the government isn't relying on the benevolence of billionaires. This is a guy who has a track record over 30 years of pumping money back into his community. You mentioned to yourself there the JP McManus Fund. It's donated 100 million over the last 15 years. That's gone into education. That's gone into community infrastructure. That's gone into healthcare. That's gone into community projects in Limerick and Clare in the Midwest. That's where that money is going to. Now take this money with the GA. 32 million, a million quid for each county board. My county allowed 40 clubs, that's 25 grand. There's people in my town, my county tonight saying, we're gonna be able to fund club facilities. We're gonna be able to fund walking tracks. We're gonna be able to put more money into equipment. We're gonna have boys, girls, all ages being able to play from children right to adults because of this money. If you were to come up with a more inclusive organisation on the island than of Ireland, you won't find one more inclusive than the GA. This touches every community, mm. every club. This is a huge amount of money and fair okay, play well, to Okay, well, on the funding issue, I'm sure as a public representative, then you've been lobbied to help support your local club. But we've JP McManus doing the job instead. Well, if you want to talk about what the government does with sports, we have more money than ever before throughout the last five years for, for, for sports capital grants. Okay, so um, there's no need for this million euro per GA county board. Uh, I will definitely take a million quid for every county board. There's no issue. The two points I would make is we have an excellent sports capital grant. We pump money into clubs. But here is something that wasn't anyone, wasn't, anyone wasn't expecting. It's an excellent Christmas gift. And it is going to benefit every single man, woman, child, community on this island of Ireland that's involved with the GA. And I think it's a good thing. Um, yeah, I, I, look, and all, look, like it will be hugely welcomed. But it's also, I suppose, a donation of choosing. Um, in this regard. And if a person does not pay taxes here, but instead donates back to the community, you know, and chooses what they'd like to donate to, uh, do you take any issue with that? Uh, no, because it's the freedom of choice that this guy has gone out, he's made a success of his life, he's made money, and he has the freedom of choice to decide what to do with that money. We have a tax system in this country where if you don't live in this country for 183 days or less, you don't pay a tax. He falls into that uh, system. We have a tax system in this country where if you are not making money off a business in Ireland, you don't pay a tax on that. He falls into that. We uh, have a tax system in this country where if you work hard, if you reward work, we put money back in your pocket. We have a tax system that allows people like JP McManus pump 150 million right. quid into communities. And so you're in the very last happy with years. that tax system, and you hear from Annie Howie saying, you know, we need to look at that. I mean, well, we I, need to look at the I way have, I have that the, tax system. I suppose allows people I, to make a lot of money yeah. by not living here for over 183 days of the year. Yeah, I have the utmost respect for Senator Annie Hoy, a server in the Senate, but to say we need to eat the rich, like, give me a break. We have a really progressive tax system, one of the most progressive tax right. systems in the world, and it's, we have a rip-roaring economy as a result of it. <clears throat> Matt, uh, Sinn Féin's position on this, and I suppose the decision um, to donate and where... Uh, the whole tax exile question comes into it. So I, I, I actually think there's two very distinct issues here. One is whether or not um, very wealthy people should be paying more tax, and I believe they absolutely should be. There are 210, I think, most recent figures indicate of what are called high net worth individuals. These are mega rich people from Ireland who are not resident here for tax purposes. It has to be said, 209 of them don't give 
32 million euro to the GEA. And I do think you have to say this is um, a really positive gesture on the part of the McManus family and we should all just accept that um, and, and, and say it. And, you know, on behalf of Monaghan people everywhere, if he wants to make the contribution to Monaghan, two million, all the, all the better. Okay. But in terms of the other issues then, I think we need to have a... Do you believe it's unfair a... then, sorry, what we're hearing from Annie and, and from others on the left from the Social Democrats and people before profit would clearly and very publicly outlined on this that, you know, it would be better served if someone were to live here and pay taxes here, and like, like other people do. If I, had, people. You know, if, if I had my preference, those 210 people that I've referenced would all be living in Ireland and paying their taxes in Ireland. And I think their contribution would be very much valued by the, the services um, that people depend on, because I agree. That Do you isn't. include JP McManus in that? For sure. I would prefer if all of those people were resident in Ireland. But JP McManus isn't breaking any laws. He's mm. adhering to the system that has been in place under Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Labour Party governments for a long period of time that has allowed very wealthy people mm. to be resident outside of Ireland um, for you know, the bulk of the, the, okay. the year and then avoid paying um, um, taxes. As I say, only I, know, one... I mean, would Sinn Féin like to see a change in the, in the legislation that we would make been... it more would make it more difficult? There's a number of there's a, num there's a number of issues that need to, need to be addressed, and we have been saying that the tax strategy group needs to actually assess um, how the non-residency you know um, measures work, and then there's the other, there's a particular issue around what's called the domicile levy, yeah. which is so to ensure that people like that I mean, actually pay like some contribution. I mean, like what we're hearing... Only 14 of those people, by the way actually pay what's this domicile levy, which is you know, a 200,000 um, tax, um, um, tax um, penalty that people who are um, essentially availing of the non-residency okay. status. So that needs to be reviewed as okay. well. So there is a whole load. But I, what I'm saying is, let's separate. The... And let's not look a gift horse in the mouth. For sure. All right, Annie on that. I mean, you know, um, JP McManus and others like him earn money. They do so legally. They choose to live abroad for tax purposes. Um, you know, they needn't give any money back into the community. Uh, they needn't help people out, you know, cancer care, hospice care, sporting associations. They needn't do that. Um, and, and, you know, people like JPR. Yeah, and if we had as progressive and fair a tax system as has been alluded to, then we wouldn't have this situation where there were people able to get away with earning extraordinary amounts of money off the back of workers, by the way. Uh, you know, there were people who are working in order to make some people very, very rich. And if our system was as progressive and fair as it was, then that money would be redistributed through fair taxes. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't be relying on those individuals, as I say, to give philanthropy, benevolence, good. And, and this money is great. No one's going to turn around and I'm not certainly not going to turn around and be like, give it back. That's not how these things work. But that's not how our system should be. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a fairer and a better way. And it should be more progressive and it should be a fairer way. And people who are working really, really hard. I had a taxi driver who drove me out here who's working two jobs. His wife is working two jobs. And they're on their knees with money. So there can't, it, it's not that fair. You know, if, if everyone worked right. hard and earned lots of money, we wouldn't have, I wouldn't have a taxi driver tell me that they didn't have a penny to spend at the end of the month. And yet they're working night and day. All right. Uh, like, John, on this, I suppose there's a value for money question coming into it as well. And when the public see, sees how taxpayers' money is spent, say, on the likes of maybe what's going to be the world's most expensive children's hospital that hasn't yet been completed, um, there, people may question, well, about how elected officials spend their money and, you know, do the wealthy businessmen do it better? Well, I think 
what has happened, I mean, they are separate. They're separate in this sense that J.P. McManus has done what he has done. But he's also a man that is notoriously publicity shy. And um, I think J.P. McCoy, um, McCoy, one of his jockeys, had, has spoken about that in the past. The advice he always gets from him is, is, is to not attract attention to yourself, which he has done here. What it does ultimately is lead us to the culture wars that we are going to see in the next, at the next general election where Sinn Féin are representing a body of people who have been angered by inequality in society over the last 15 years, which culminated in the crash of 2011. Mm. Um, John McGahan here is, is, is defending this kind of activity, but there was a court case in 2016 where J.P. McManus attempted to uh, obtain um, tax back that he had paid in the IRS, uh, paid the, the IRS had taken mm. because he had won $17 million in, in, in a game of back, backgammon. And it was revealed in that court case that the man had not paid tax in Ireland between 1995 and 2010. That kind of behaviour can only um, cause anger among certain co cohorts of society and pro probably strengthen the views um, that Sinn Féin espoused to the electorate coming into a general election. And I think, yes, he's, he's done what he's done, but he's attracted attention to an inequality that is, I find, morally mm. hard to justify. Uh, the general public response, because it, it, it's been interesting to see, um, you know, Annie, you voiced an opinion on it. We also heard from Jennifer Whitmore of the Social Democrats who tweeted about it. Um, and the response and reaction to, to that sort of questioning of, you know, pay taxes here rather than choosing, you know, how you how you donate um, to the community and um, received a pretty hostile response online. What do you think the public view is of it, yeah, John? I think, I think that response, uh, particularly from Jennifer, and I say this frankly, I just think it's plain old begrudgery. I really, really why do. do. You, but why do you so think it's, take, be, it's begrudgery yeah, I'll explain. to, to I'll explain. question, you know, tax exile status? Yeah, I'll, I'll explain. The begrudgery to me comes into it because this money has been donated to the GA. Where were people questioning J.P. McManus when he's putting 100 million quid in Limerick and Clare into hospice services? Where were people questioning where he pays his taxes when he was building community infrastructure in the Midwest? Where are people questioning where he pays his taxes when he is pumping more and more money uh, into healthcare and community facilities? So all of a sudden, this is just a trendy topic because a guy has come along before Christmas. And actually, John is quite right. He has been notoriously PR shy over the last 30 mm. years. This isn't a PR stunt. This isn't some sort of trying to magic it all up. This is a good thing. Uh, we can have a debate about tax services, all of that. Yeah. But when I just saw the begrudgery from some people today, like, uh, typically I, on the left of Irish politics, I couldn't understand why it. it. Why, why it is... Annie, you can answer that. Are you, are, I mean, um, is there begrudgery at the heart of this? That you know, someone is a successful businessman, they want to give money back, they I'm want to benefit... The I'm particularly thinking of small and clubs and small counties that this money will make a life of difference. I think this is brilliant for them. I think there's no question about the investment and the meaning this will have for the GAA. Mm. But I also just don't think billionaires should exist. Like, that's my flattened skinny on it. I don't think billionaires should exist. I don't think people need that much money. And I think it's abhorrent that there are a few people in this world who have an extraordinary amount of money that can do Horse. these things and that there are people who are starving and dying of hunger. I don't think those two things and should you take, exist. you take issue whether it is, um, you know, giving money to a cancer care 
or health services or the GA. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It's the, it's the principal point on it's this It's the principal field. point that billionaires shouldn't exist. Okay. It's great Matt, that they can give money, but they shouldn't exist. Matt, uh, should billionaires exist? I think there is gross economic inequality, both in Ireland and globally, that if we don't address, we're going to see um, a further societal breakdown in the times ahead. What we have in Ireland, for example, is a disproportionate um, levy being put on ordinary workers and yeah. families what's while some answer? people are able to uh, avoid. So we have okay. to address that inequality. So what's your answer? We have to address that inequality. Mm. But that doesn't mean that you spit at somebody who actually makes a very positive contribution mm -hmm. to virtually every community in Ireland on a day like today. There's a place... And there is a need for us to have a debate around how we address those economic inequalities. Um, I just don't think that we should be targeting the ire today at a person who's actually made a positive difference. All right, OK, there we'll have to leave that conversation for now. That's all we have time for on that. My thanks to John McGahan and to John Lee uh, and to Annie Howey, who's joined us also tonight. Coming up uh, in a major development, EU accession negotiations are to start with Ukraine. We'll have the latest on that. Do stay with us. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. In a significant move, the European Union has decided to open accession talks with Ukraine. It comes after Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban threatened to veto the move. Well, for more on this, I'm joined down the line by Your News Europe correspondent Shona Murray, who is live in Brussels. Thanks for joining us tonight, Shona. Um, historic move and uh, there, there was speed to this breakthrough. Uh, how surprising was it that it came so fast, to the decision to open these accession talks? Oh, it took everyone by surprise. We were all very much um, expecting to be spending the night at the European Council building tonight and uh, be there probably until at least Sunday, according to Leo Varadkar. We heard from the Estonian Prime Minister, Kaya Kallas, saying that she was willing to keep talking till Christmas because we'd heard from Orban all along for the past few weeks saying that he didn't even want the Ukraine issue on the table, on the agenda at the summit, that it should be removed. He said that Ukraine was the most corrupt country in the world, which is um, quite incredible, incredible coming from him. Um, and then suddenly, just after six o'clock, Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, said enlargement was finished. And President Zelensky of Ukraine tweeted that it was a great day for Ukraine, great day for Europe. In the end, what happened was all 26 member states 
um, couldn't persuade Victor Orban to agree, but he didn't use his veto. He abstained from the vote. And what I've heard is um, Chancellor Schultz of Germany asked him to leave the room while everyone else passed the agreement to formally then start accession talks for Ukraine. Okay, so he may be giving out about it, but essentially he allowed it, he allowed it to happen by stepping out of the room um, and then coming back in again. There's this controversy about the 10 billion euro in frozen EU funds for Hungary. A pure coincidence that this was released, um, according to commission officials, just before uh, the summit kicked off. That's not everyone's take. No, it's barely anyone's take. Um, the European Commission President, your sort of online, her team have all said that uh, Viktor Orban had engaged in the necessary processes that uh, essentially dealt with the independence of the judiciary in Hungary and that they had done what they needed to do and then were allowed to therefore get access to 10.2 billion euros of EU cohesion funding for Hungary that had been withdrawn or withheld because of issues around rule of law and, as I said, independence of the judiciary. Uh, the EU's position is that they would be breaching the, the EU rule of law if they didn't give this money to Hungary. And, of course, they, they say the timing is completely coincidental. But nobody believes that. And everybody is worried that, once again, Viktor Orban has been able to hold the EU to ransom uh, in order to get the money that has been withdrawn for him for his breaches uh, of EU law. And there is a very much a consensus that this is unsustainable because this is what he's been doing for several years. And at the same time, chipping away at democracy in not just Hungary, but also European values and laws. So it's a very dangerous, precarious situation. But the EU's position overall was that Ukraine is so much more important that we really need to get Ukraine into the EU and support Ukraine. Otherwise, Putin will win. All right. Uh, just on another point today, we heard from the Taoiseach that the EU has lost credibility due to its stance on Gaza. How was that received in Brussels? Well, because there was such a dominant um, discussion around Ukraine, it really didn't get much uh, attention because nobody was really talking about the Middle East today. That would be for tomorrow's discussion. Um, but also everybody knows Ireland's position is more nuanced in that obviously Ireland takes a position that supports Israel's right to defend itself, calls for the immediate release of the hostages, condemns Hamas's terrorist attack, but also supports uh, international humanitarian law for civilians in Gaza and is concerned at the grave humanitarian crisis that's taking place there. Ireland, Belgium, Spain and Malta have uh, sent a letter to the European Council to say that we need a much more serious discussion given how apocalyptic the situation is in Gaza. And unfortunately, uh, we know that there can't, there hasn't probably unlikely going to be an agreement by 27 member states calling for a ceasefire. We saw at the United Nations General Assembly, the two countries, the Czech Republic and Austria, voted against a ceasefire. The others either voted in favour or abstained. Um, so Ireland's position is well known, so it wouldn't get that much attention. But I think, um, you know, for an EU that wants to call itself the geopolitical union, if they can't have a proper discussion and take a strong stance on a very important armed conflict or conflict that's taking place in our neighbourhood, then that obviously would be disappointing. OK, uh, Shona Murray, thank you for joining us and bringing us up to date um, on that, that new departure um, from Brussels tonight at the summit. We do appreciate it. Well, Sinn Féin TD McCarthy has stayed on with me and he's also joined by Professor of European Politics at Maynooth University, John O'Brennan. And joining us live in Brussels is Fine Gael Minister of State for European Affairs and Defence, Peter Burke. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, tonight, Minister. Um, I'd like to come to you on this deal that was um, reached or the reaction to the opening of accession talks. How significant do you view this move? 
I think it's very significant. It's a very important day for Ukraine. Obviously, this week has been critical in charting Ukraine's path in, into Europe because on two counts, we have in the first instance the budgetary process, which is currently still under negotiation in the room where we're trying to get an increase of 50 billion euro to Ukraine to run its public services by way of 17 billion euro in grants and a further 33 billion euro in loans. And secondly, then, that critical decision that requires unanimity to set Ukraine on its path to become right into the heart of Europe. Now, that will obviously take time because we're only opening uh, the accession process, opening the negotiations right across, across 30 chapters. But nevertheless, if that signal did not go out today, it would be a huge blow to Ukraine. So it was so important for the credibility of the European Union that we did achieve that through the negotiation in the room. Uh, do you object to or have concerns about the manner and timing about around the release of 10 billion euro in funds to Hungary who were threatening to veto this move? Absolutely. The timing is frustrating. But if you look at the factual position, the European Commission is the executive branch of the European Union. It is independent in terms of its rules and it has set criteria down for the uh, payment of funding that has been taken away from Hungary due to its incursions over the rule of law process. But we ha it has been very clear that once it meets certain targets, that funding has to be released. And Hungary has put forward certain legislation in relation to the independence of its judiciary and supporting that. And that legislation has been enacted now. And hence, uh, the European Commission have to release the funding by the end of the year. But absolutely, I would by concur the that the, year, but the timing is... Go on, the timing. Sorry, you say, the, is that what you're saying? The timing is, is of a concern, absolutely. What do you mean of a concern? I mean, do you agree with EU officials that it's purely coincidental that 10 billion euro was given to someone who may have blocked this move to open accession talks? I, I have absolutely no doubt it is coincidental because the rules are inflexible, unfortunately, at the moment, the way they are written. So I think we do need to see changes in that regard. We don't want to leave ourselves open to accusations as a union that if you are someone who does not behave in a manner that espouses the values of the European Union, that you will get favourable uh, payments uh, in relation to monies that are withheld because the rule of law is very important. Mm. We know that we really have to be firm on that. And Hungary is currently being held about 20 billion euros. So we need to continue to hold it to account okay. on media freedom and so many other issues in the country. OK, uh, let's get John O'Brennan in on that because you've been very critical um, of, of, of uh, President Ursula von der Leyen on the granting of funding to Viktor Orban in this regard. You believe that she should step down over this. What do you take from what Peter Burke had to say and agreeing with that it was a pure coincidence that this 10 billion euro and funding, quite frustrating that it was a coincidence that it was released um, just in time for this key summit on accession talks? Well, I certainly welcome the fact that both Moldova and Ukraine have now been able to open negotiations. That's a good thing. But it's the way in which this was done, Claire. It's just extraordinary that the minister could believe that this was a mere coincidence and that uh, somehow Ukraine has met these criteria for legal thresholds which the Europe European Commission has set. Every EU law expert that has looked at this in recent months is absolutely emphatic. The Ukrainian reforms um, are real. Uh, the ones that the European Commission has asked for and the Ukrainians have delivered and that Victor Orban says hasn't been delivered. And actually in Hungary, we've seen the opposite, uh, that 
the Hungarian government has been engaged in fake reforms. And Orban has done this over and over again over the last 13 years. The 13 billion, um, uh, 30 billion euros that um, has been withheld from uh, Hungary over the last while, I mean, it was a decision of the European Court of Justice that justified that. And what has happened actually over the last 24 years, it, it's a complete political decision where the Commission knew that the European Union was being blackmailed by Viktor Orban, that, in other words, this summit meeting would have turned into a complete disaster where there would have been a veto of Ukrainian opening of negotiations if Orban didn't get this $10 billion. And there is no justification, in my view, because what Orban has been doing over so many years is thrashing the rule of law. There are no independent checks and balances anymore in Hungary. So, They've all disappeared. Well, how would you describe what happened then with that release of funds that came at that critical juncture ahead of this summit? It's a travesty. The EU has given in to blackmail. That's what has happened over the last 24 hours. And the consequences are going to be felt not just in the next months, but for years to come. Democracy is under pressure mm. on both sides of the Atlantic. And what has happened over the last 24 hours is that the Commission has actually sided with the bad guys. Okay. So it that, actually that, demonstrates that you can actually blackmail the European Union and you can get away with it. Uh, Peter, you can blackmail the European Union uh, and that's exactly what's happened here, says John. What do you say to that? No, I very much disagree with that. I have the privilege of being in the room when those Article 7 hearings are underway and indeed have questioned the Hungarian Minister for European Affairs on many occasions when they are presenting their rule of law report. And we can see the huge problems in Hungary. We are very clear on that. Media freedom has huge issues surrounding the press and LGBTI rights, so many areas of frustration, including the judiciary. And I would agree with the point it is critical to see how the rules and legislation that has been brought forward by Hungary is implemented. That is a key concern. But to be crystal clear, the European Commission has a process by where it checks and balances the rules and legislation that is brought forward by a country when it is requested to do so under the Article 7 hearings. And when it does bring forward those laws, funding has to be paid in lieu of same. Now, obviously, there's another 20 billion or so that's still held for Hungary. And we will be very clear, and I will, in the General Affairs Council and holding Hungarian ministers to account to ensure that the values of the European Union aren't be diminished. But we're very clear that they are. We know Hungary has significant problems. There's a whole host of issues that have been raised in the rule of law dialogue. And that's why I believe, and I think this is well shared, uh, that you know, the union is leaving itself open, especially the commission, to allegations like this when the funding was delivered at this particular point in time, and we shouldn't have that happen in future. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, with that, I mean, I, I suppose an admission there that there are challenges that come with this and to dealing with Hungary within the EU. Um, to come to you, Matt Carthy, on this, do you believe this is a very significant step that we've seen happening now, the opening of this accession talks? I mean, it's interesting because for a long time, Europe had no interest in having um, Ukraine join the EU. Um, they were an outlier. They weren't in the picture until the war. Yeah, and prior to the, the war, I think there would have been you know, a lot of concerns raised around Ukrainian membership. I was a member of the Agriculture Committee in the European Parliament, and there was a view that Ukraine, which is such a vast and large 
food produ producing um, country that its uh, accession to the EU would have raised fundamental questions for the common agricultural policy and how that would operate. Um, but I, I think today was very much a symbolic step. I think it was an important, an important step in the context of the war. Um, it is a, a, a step nonetheless, and there's a lot of more, a lot of more um, um, steps that need to be taken. This could take upwards on, you know, on ten years, if if if, if not more. There'll be a lot of issues. There's a lot of rules, regulations, standards that accession countries are expected to to meet in order to um, become full members of the European Union, and that they will all apply, I assume, to to um, Ukraine. But there is clearly a very dominant wish on the part of the Commission and the part of 26 states that this move was made. I think they would all have credibility if they, and more credibility if they were just up front and saying that's why we made this move in respect of Hungary, I think. But the, the, problem, the, the problem, Claire, is that this is a lie, that the reforms yeah. that the European Commission says that Hungary has been engaged in are not reforms at all. Every single expert in EU law that has looked at this in recent months is emphatic in saying they're lying. And the European Commission has gone along with this only because there was going to be a complete disaster over the next two days if Ukrainian accession negotiations hadn't been opened. That's and why that, we are But what was we that are. critically important that yes. these accession talks did open? So I think it, it was. Is that, you know, was that move, therefore... Uh, it was political, but one that was perhaps necessary to get these accession talks underway. Yeah, Ukraine has come under a lot of pressure for a number of reasons, partly because in Washington there's a bit of war fatigue. The Republican Party has been refusing to countenance further aid that the Biden administration wants to give to Ukraine. In Europe as well, there are some member states that have gone wobbly in recent months. And there have been other difficulties, such as in Germany, the Constitutional Court has made it more difficult for the German government to financially support Ukraine. So I think symbolically it was hugely important that Ukraine should get this kind of boost. But in my view, the price we're paying for that is that the rule of law and democracy in the European Union is being completely undermined. And in the medium to longer term, that's the bigger issue. A year from now, we could have... Donald Trump returning to the presidents in the US, it's an enormous challenge for Europe. And what we're doing is helping the autocrats like Viktor Orban. We shouldn't be doing that. Uh, Peter, what do you say to that? I think there's a valid point in terms of countries who are members of the European Union when they don't espouse the values of the Union and when they obviously have a breakdown in either the rule of law or media freedoms, how we deal with them as a Union through the Article 7 process poses a huge challenge because we've seen with Poland, for example, they were backing up Hungary every step of the way. Now uh, Donald Tusk has come in as Prime Minister, just been elected this week, and we've seen a sea change for them. But that's because the people of Poland voted for change, voted for a pro-European party. But the Article 7 process and how the European Union was dealing with po Poland arguably wasn't effective, and it's not been effective with Hungary. I think we have to acknowledge that as we reform and take in new countries from the Western Balkan Six to the Eastern Trio, including Ukraine, you know, how do we reform the union to deal with countries when they become members and do not measure up to the values of the union? What penalties should they pay and how do we really hold them to account? But largely, there has been a case that, you know, it hasn't been as effective as we would like. 
Uh, OK. Uh, John, on, I suppose, look, this is going to play out. It's a long process, as you say. It's just the beginning. Yeah. You would question whether it's, you know, really historic or significant in that it is a, a, a first step. Um, but what are the benefits to the EU in this project? Because it's a, it's a costly one, isn't it? It's going to cost something around maybe 190 million euro, I saw quoted somewhere, the accession of Ukraine to the, to the EU. Yeah, but the European Union, Claire, has a GDP of roughly 16, 17 trillion. This is not going to be costly in the longer term. I accept what Matt has said about cap, that that is going to be difficult. But the same argument was made about Poland 20 years ago. Poland has more or less the same population, the same proportion of the economy is agriculture, same proportion of the population work in agriculture. And we managed very well. The advantage is that Ukraine is literally the breadbasket of Europe. It could actually be a very good thing for European agriculture that Ukraine becomes a member. Yes, there are going to be costs. There are also going to be costs of reconstruction. They're significant. But in the longer term, what we get is a very large country that will be joining the European Union that has become a democracy. And that will be, I think, hugely important in the future as we confront the real challenge ahead of us, which is the autocracies, Russia and China, becoming more and more powerful. And just to be clear, I support the accession of Ukraine into the European Union. Um, I'm just pointing out there will be challenges associated with that. And I think I agree with what you say in terms of the challenges facing the EU, but there is also you know, the elephant in the room that we will see over the next couple of days, which is the very different attitude we will see from EU leaders when we're talking about what is happening in Palestine right now versus what is happening in Ukraine. In my view, we are dealing with two aggressive um, regimes, the Russian mm. and the Israeli re regimes, both in breach of international law, and Europe should be consistent in demanding adherence to international law in both instances. Uh, and Peter Burke, I don't know if you're still with us there. Uh, Peter, just to ask you briefly on that, because we had the Taoiseach saying that, you know, the EU had lost credibility, especially among young people, when it came to its stance on Gaza. Uh, do you believe that, you know, that Ireland should be pushing more on the issue of sanctions? We're absolutely pushing as hard as we can. We have been raising the uh, Israeli agreement with the EU in relation to sanctions, but that has to be passed by unanimity. So when you look at the collective EU 27, you have one country like Austria, which has cut off aid to Palestine. It was the very first thing it did. It shows you the mountain you would have to climb to get any changes in terms of sanctions towards uh, Israel. So what we're trying to do now is to mirror that vote in the UN, be as strong as we can in terms of our diplomatic skill in turning the EU's gravity, its centre of gravity, to really call for a humanitarian ceasefire, trying to get that into the final text of the conclusions, because it's horrific what we've seen in Gaza. Those uh, horrific... Um, views of social media, poor innocent children, a collective punishment of so many people who are condensed in a very densely populated area. And it's so important that, you know, we hold Israel to account in relation to that. And Ireland will be very clear and at the forefront of that. All right. OK, there we will have to leave that for now. My thanks to Peter Burke, to Matt McCarthy and to John O'Brennan. Lots more after this break, including a world first in broadcasting. Do stay with us. Welcome back, streaming giant Netflix has abandoned the usual secrecy that surrounds its viewing figures by releasing new data which reveals that nearly 100 billion hours were viewed between January 
and June of 2023. Here with more on this is Movies Editor with Entertainment.ie, Brian Lloyd. I'm sure uh, you took up quite a few of those hours did, uh, yeah. perusing all the various uh, Netflix offerings. But this is kind of a, this is a new steer from yeah. them in releasing this data. Why have they not done it until now? Well, essentially, they were forced into doing it. I mean, as much as Ted Sarandos, who's the co-chief executive of Netflix, has been saying that this was already planned all along and that they intended to release this data. Really, this the, the reason for this is because the Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA, as you know, had a major strike over the summer. And part of their demands for this was, was that streaming services would actually release the viewership figures that they've kept secret for so long. And the reason why they wanted these viewership figures was, was that previously uh, actors and writers would receive royalties based on you know traditional television and box office figures. But now with streaming, they actually have those data, so they're able to computate and calculate how much royalties and produce What they're owed. Yeah, what they're owed, um, exactly. I mean, how much is the sort of top 10 or most watched, how much is that an indicator um, for production companies of how well a programme's doing? I mean, well, that's that's accurate, right? That is accurate. Well, I mean, see, this is the whole thing about it, is that Netflix have basically said that they are not going to allow a third party to independently verify and audit those figures. So we have to believe that the, those figures are right. And that's already causing a little bit of consternation because, as you know, when it comes to, you know, cinema box office, for example, or if you look at, like, traditional ter uh, terrestrial television, you have Nielsen ratings and then you have box office figures, and that's verified by Comscore and other companies like that. So there's always a third party involved. But when it comes to Netflix, they're just saying, you know, The Night Agent, for example, is the number one TV series in something like 830, 813 million people. Or, sorry, 830 million hours have been viewed of it. And then the number two one is Ginny and Georgia, which I've never heard of, but apparently that's the number two show on Netflix. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Are there names that, you know, the, the Irish audience would recognise and, and shows that we've all been yeah. watching? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously the night... Yeah, those, I mean, those big, those big uh, viewing numbers. Yeah, I mean, obviously the night agent, I mean, I think everybody was watching that. That was the number one show, 830 million hours. Wednesday, for example, which I know a lot of people watch, that was number four on the list. But then you go further down, I mean, go into the, the licensed shows, which is basically the shows that Netflix didn't create themselves, but then licensed from other TV shows. Like Suits, for example, that was number 200 mm. on the list. You have to remember, they released figures for 18,000 titles and Suits was 200 on the list. So that's almost kind of considered a sleeper hit, if you like, for mm. Netflix and for Suits. Um, uh, the releasing of this data was part of the provisions of the, of the actors' uh, a strike um, that ran for three months this mm. year. Another element of that was around AI in Hollywood. Is yeah. anything being done about that? In artificial intelligence? Mm. Well, I mean, here, obviously, you know, you had Ireland AM doing yeah, it Yeah, we'll have morning. a little look at that in a minute. <laughs> but just on the subject of... Because it was a big concern, wasn't it, yeah. for extras, that they'd be used again and again and again. Absolutely. So um, one of the, by the, people purporting to be them. That's... Yeah, so what one of the... Not the money. Yeah, basically, what studios were offering at the time was, was that they'd basically bring in a background extra, scan their likeness, their expressions and all the rest of it into an artificial intelligence, and then they'd be used as a background extra in perpetuity. Now... The deal that uh, SAG-AFTRA worked out with the studios was, was that from now on, any kind of artificial intelligence has to be done with the consent, the active consent of the performer, and that they will receive payment for it as well. All right, and okay. they will so receive some progress on that. So there has been some progress on it, okay. guardrails as well. Okay, I don't know, will Tommy Bow receive any payment on this? Because <laughs> there wasn't just one, but two of them in, in the Ireland AM studio today because they broadcast the world's first AI show today. 
Um, and you can see there that Will Dalton, sports presenter Will Dalton, uh, AI technology was used on him to transform him into Tommy Bow. Uh, quite incredible, really. Uh, can you break down how they went about that? I can't because, I mean, normally I have my movie review slot and I got bumped. You uh, were phased out by ChatGPT. I mean, this is it. People talk about, you know, losing their jobs, artificial intelligence. Well, I lived it. Like, I mean, my review slot got bumped. So, um, but yeah, my understanding of it is that they use deepfake technology to replace Will Dalton with uh, my old pal Tommy Bow. And to be fair, I mean, for the first, like, 30 seconds of it, I was, you know, on the wide shots, you could creepy. see it. It looked creepy, didn't it? Yeah. But then when he got up close, you could see, I think it was like the hairline and the ears were a little bit different. So mm. nothing against Will Dalton or anything like that, but just you could tell up close. Yeah, I, I mean, can we look forward? I mean, look, to, to deep fake Brian Lloyd, could that happen? No, it's the moustache that keeps everybody away, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's harder to technologically yeah, yeah. regenerate. OK, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Brian, bringing us up to date and all of that. Uh, my thanks to all our panellists here, uh, but from the late team, good night and take care. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.